Hello, and welcome back to the India podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent, giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and I'm here this week with Lily Mae Lazarus, contributing writer for The Independent, to talk about the death sentence of Kevin Cooper, who is currently imprisoned at San Quentin. Thanks for being here, Lily. Thank you, Molly, for having me. So, Lily, can you give me a brief synopsis of how this case has unfolded in the past month and what the details of the original conviction were? So on May 28th, Governor Newsom issued an executive order that demanded an independent investigation be held regarding the Chino Hills murders that occurred in 1983. And the man that was convicted of this crime, his name is Kevin Cooper, and he has been on death row for the past 36 years. And he has filed appeal after appeal after appeal, and he has maintained his innocence for these 36 years. And he claims that he was framed by prosecutors and that evidence was planted or manufactured or tampered with and even destroyed in some cases all throughout the investigation. And so this independent investigation basically is the next step in Newsom's suspension of the death penalty in California. Obviously, he can't ban it because that would require a vote and a changing of the law here in the state. But this is definitely falling in line with Newsom's trend of not wanting to put anyone to death and refusing to do so while he's in office. And it has sparked some skepticism into law enforcement's handling of the case. And and that's not new. But A lot of this evidence was obviously collected in the 80s, and it has been retested over the years. And so some of that evidence has been fully consumed or it has degraded. It's not available for retesting. But one local man, his name is Tom Parker, has been integral to Cooper's defense. He is a former FBI agent, and he has worked without charge in an attempt to prove that Kevin Cooper is innocent. And all of his evidence that he has gathered and what he has found and what the courts have upheld in in various appellate dissents will come to light during this independent investigation that is going to be held throughout the next year and, and ongoing. So you spoke with Tom Parker, the former agent in charge of the FBI's Los Angeles office, who has been fighting to prove Cooper's innocence, as you said. Why was he so impassioned to come out of retirement to further examine Cooper's case? So Parker retired from the FBI after being a part of the Rodney King task force that happened in the 90s. And he entered into Cooper's defense with a rational level of skepticism because the vast majority of people on death row maintain their innocence. And he was approached by Norman Heil, who is Cooper's attorney. And he said, you know, I'm going to look through these case files. And if I find something, I'll let you know but I want to reserve the right to back out at any time. And Heil agreed and and Cooper started looking through these cases and immediately saw great issue with what occurred during the investigation, during the trial, during the appeals. And after seeing these indiscrepancies, he went back to Norman Heil and he said, I'm seeing issues here, but you know, what's your theory apart from he was wrongly convicted? and Heil didn't have an alternative theory. And so Parker's next step then was to look for an alternative suspect with means and and motive. And that is what he believes he's found. He believes he's found a way to exonerate Cooper, who has now been on death row for so many years. And the case, I mean, just in my time looking over it and spending many hours 
reading through all of these documents and, and all of these findings and speaking with Parker himself for almost three hours, it does begin to convince you of his innocence, which is is heartbreaking because you are looking through these files and, and it becomes clear why Parker was so adamant to continue working as a crusader in Cooper's innocence, because, you know, there is a lot there and there's a lot of substance and the story, just each part falls in line and it it's very, um it pulls at the heartstrings. Now, the justice system has been a subject of critical examination for years. How did you, in writing this, seek to approach this case from a journalist's perspective? The job of any ethical journalist is to approach any story objectively and to abandon all personal bias or whatever your feelings may be. In stories like this, that becomes very difficult because you have a life that feels like it's in your hands in the court of public opinion. For me personally, I approached it by educating myself to the best of my abilities. And I read through the dissents of every appellate court and the opinions that were sustained by these appellate courts and what these lawmakers had said previously about the case and what, you know, prosecutors had said about the case. Obviously, the San Bernardino district attorney has his opinions on what Kevin's claims are. And there are a plethora of judges on the Ninth Circuit that believe that he is innocent. So I looked at each reason why these people believe he is guilty or he is innocent, and I then tried to report it as objectively as possible and tell the story of what Tom Parker has collected and what the prosecution believes happened as a way of telling both sides of the story. Because I believe that in many senses, at the time, prosecution argued a certain case and whatever happened after the fact in in some senses was out of their hands in other ways was very much so in their control. And I think that does come to light in these court records. So I'm reporting using the facts, which is important because my personal feelings on the matter when it comes down to writing the story have no place there. But the feelings of Tom Parker and the feelings of Judge William Fletcher on the Ninth Circuit and the feelings of Cooper's lawyers and Kevin Cooper himself, those are the things that I believe people need to hear and they need to also hear the facts that got him convicted. So I approached it in a two-pronged approach. So what can we expect from Gavin Newsom's office in the coming weeks regarding Cooper's clemency? That is, that's a hard question to answer because it is still early. And especially with the pandemic not being fully over, we're not entirely sure where they're going. Obviously, he is said they're opening up this independent investigation. And in my eyes, I would think that at the moment, the Morrison Forrester, which is the law firm that will be conducting the independent investigation, is probably getting all their ducks in a row. Because this is going to be a huge deal in the eyes of the public. People are going to want to hear about this, not just in California, but across the nation. I mean, Cooper has been written about by Nick Kristoff of the New York Times. He's had segments on TV dedicated exclusively to his story and and what he believes happened to him and why he's in prison now. And so I think that they're really trying to approach it sensitively because there's going to be a lot of attention from media and from law enforcement and obviously from just the justice system in general, which, as we all know, does not like to be proved wrong. And so that's what I believe is going to happen. And that's what I think is happening right now is that they're, they're making sure that they're organized. They're making sure they have a team that they can trust. 
And they're really approaching this carefully because Cooper came within four hours of being executed in 2004. And I think before California executes another person, which could be Cooper, they want to make sure that they are doing this as objectively and as well as they possibly can. Well, thank you so much, Lily, for speaking with me about this case. Thank you for having me. Now over to Tyler Hayden, senior editor for The Independent, discussing the new Dormzilla project for UCSB. So, Tyler, where did the plans for this new building come from? And can you put into perspective just how big it will be? Sure. So the the first time we heard about this plan was actually all the way back in 2016, because a pretty well-known investor billionaire named Charlie Munger, who's uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, he in 2016 announced that he would give $200 million to the university to build a new dorm. His grandson went to UCSB. He has this funny kind of side hustle of, of financing and building college dorms, sort of a pet project of his. Anyway, so he he brought this up in 2016, and then it kind of it laid dormant for the last four or five years until very recently, UCSB started getting pressure from a lot of housing advocates here in the community to build more units, more housing for their growing ranks of students and staff. So as part of, uh, well, actually in response to that pressure, UCSB just last week released a lot more detailed plans of what this Munger project would look like. And the the blueprint so far put it at 11 stories, uh, about 160 feet tall and occupying um, or providing rather about 1.68 million square feet of floor space for about 4,500 students. So that's a lot of numbers there, but it, it, it illustrates just how massive of a project this would be and how many people it would house. Well, and sitting at 160 feet, it did lead to some creative liberty in the dubbing of Dormzilla. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we originally dubbed this this project Dormzilla, uh, kind of a moment of creative silliness, I guess. Came up with that initially and then went back and, and Googled how tall the original Godzilla from the original 1950s movie was. And he was supposed to be about 160 feet tall, ironically, about the same height. Now he's grown to like 300, 400 feet tall when he when he fights King Kong in CGI. That's where we're, we're at now. He keeps growing. But yeah, back then, that was his birth size. So where would this potentially be built and what's the projected timeline? So it's, it's slated to be built on a, a kind of funny no man's land corner of campus. It's, it's near Harder Stadium and actually the UCSB police station, sort of the northwest edge of campus. There's a bunch of existing facilities buildings there, kind of maintenance buildings with equipment and whatnot. Those would be torn down and relocated, uh, and this would get built there. And the projected timeline, uh, according to UCSB planners, though I think it's it's kind of ambitious given how massive this project would be, um, they say that the, it could be completed by 2025, which may sound like you know ways away, and it is, but it's also... This thing has to go through a lot of different levels of approval. It needs to be vetted not only by the Coastal Commission and the UC Regents, but also by the public. They're starting to hold public meetings to solicit input. So 2025 is the absolute soonest. If I was a, a betting man, which which I am, I would say more like maybe 2026, 2027, who knows? So we'll just, we'll kind of have to wait and see. 
Now, how would this project affect other infrastructure and living situations in the area? So part of the reason they're doing this now, as I mentioned, the university is, is way behind on building housing. And over the last decade or so, a couple decades even, that lack of housing has pushed students and faculty and staff into the surrounding communities to live. I mean, they just, they have no other options. So they're finding apartments and housing in Isla Vista and Goleta and the city of Santa Barbara. Um, so this would theoretically take pressure off of our already super tight housing market regionally. That's the idea anyway. So that would be a, a, a good thing. I mean, what's what's tricky though, it's, I think it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways, is it would inevitably increase traffic in and around the area. So I think Goleta would bear the, the brunt of that. There's no parking scheduled for the project, zero new parking spaces. So the students who would live there would presumably, I mean, they're not all going to have cars, but I think a decent amount of them will. They'll be parking in Isla Vista and surrounding Goleta. There will be a ton of bike racks there, but you know, you can't really ride your bike if you're going home for the weekend or the summer or, you know, going to get groceries in Goleta. So it's going to have definitely an infrastructure related impact. And then of course there's, the water that will need to be supplied and electricity. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a small city that would be built. I mean, where I grew up in, in Northern California, uh, I grew up in a small town in, in Marin County and our population was about 4,500 people, 5,000 people. So I'm just sort of picturing my entire childhood town getting put into a single building and what it would take to power that thing and, and keep it cool in the summer and warm in the winter. And it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Well, as a UCSB alum myself, I'm certainly interested in how this project will turn out. Thanks for speaking with me, Tyler. Yeah, thank you. Now I'm here with local Santa Barbara music producer, engineer, and artist Elliot Lanham talking about his new album, Delirium Honey. Thanks for being here, Elliot. Hey, happy to be here. So first and foremost, what was your approach to developing the instrumentation for this album? That's a great question. I built these songs over sort of a, a long period of time. So they all started in their own way. And um, when COVID hit, I put uh, microphones on every instrument in the studio. And then every day I would come in and sort of just see where my inspiration led me. And, you know, a lot of the times you're going to write uh, pieces like those on a guitar or acoustic guitar specifically or a piano. And I've played piano like my whole life. So um, much of them started on the piano or many of them started on the piano and then I would just decide where I would want to take them as a whole and you know the producer in me wants to stack 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 for days but you know you got to kind of like pick and choose which instruments go on which song so they all don't sound exactly the same but yeah a lot of them started on piano and then um, I just decided like which genre to kind of um, lend them to as I went. So as you said you wanted to make the instrumentation a bit different is there any single genre that you think encapsulates the album as a whole? <laughs> it's a it's a interesting question because, you know, I purposely did them so different from each other. Do you have one that came to your mind? I mean, I know mine, but I'm almost interested in yours before I say mine. Well, I recognized, of course, the singer-songwriter elements, not indie, but definitely singer-songwriter. But a lot of the songs truly felt Americana yeah. to me. And that tied in with kind of a country rock feel, 
a little bit of classic rock as well, but that's definitely what I got from it. I agree. I agree. And uh, singer-songwriter is a genre that I, I don't think people are aware of. They think that it's all either going to be like, you know, pop or rap or something like that. But singer-songwriter is a genre. I agree it falls under that. The uh, Nashville sound is always like a sound that I loved. And so definitely has a lot of that Nashville songwriter feel to it. And I would say like kind of like acoustic pop, it obviously goes heavier on the first song with like, you know, a muse sound. So like kind of there's elements of, of some full on rock um, or rock Americana. Um, and then, you know, blend with as it, it goes throughout the album to be gentler and gentler um, and, and be like, you know, really acoustic towards the end. And ending with Lullaby, that definitely makes sense. So I want to know where the name Delirium Honey comes from? Delirium Honey is a lyric that I kind of threw in one of the songs as like an Easter egg. And I just love that sort of represents, you know, the psychedelic music that I loved so much of the classic rock and 70s, 60s era. And then you know, honey is, is such a term that can be used for so many things and it can be, you know, the actual honey you put in your tea or it can be what you call your loved one or significant other or it can be the nectar that goes around and, you know, makes all the flowers for us. So there's so many uses for honey and I just thought like not to give too much away about it, but the state of mind that sometimes you can get in when you fall in love with someone is sort of delirious and almost... Uh, unhealthy in a way but that balance of like delirium and you know the sweetness that we all naturally love of honey um, works just a cool sort of yin yang to each other at the same time you decided to put out a new single called who i am why did you choose to not include it on the album i did that on purpose yeah yeah what's interesting is like you know i had nine songs done on the album for a really long time and it was a matter of which one do I want to make the 10th song and uh, I, I wanted to do 10 because to me that rounds out an album and nine felt like it fell flat of being called an album so I wanted to do 10 songs and I could have used who I am to be the 10th song but I felt that the thing that was attractive about who I am to me was that it was sort of like a random curveball from left field and I wanted to sort of hint at the fact that hey the next music i'm going to make is going to be completely different than what you've heard on this album so i don't want you to think that i'm just limited to you know or identified by the album delirium honey which is songwriter nashville or you know a little bit in that world i want to always keep you on your toes and i thought that the identity piece of who i am was uh, a cool way of of conveying that and saying like, hey, I'm going to sort of do whatever I want. And this is who I am. And that's why the second song on the album, Delirium Honey, is called uh, Worldwide Open and in parentheses, Who I Was. And so it's sort of a, a more obvious nod that, you know, that was the sound of who I was, that whole record, Delirium Honey. And then moving forward, who I am is a, a representation of where I'm going and how I'm always going to be switching it up as an artist. So I know we've mostly covered your most recent project, but you've been a producer and sound engineer for over a decade now. What have been some of your favorite projects to work on? Yeah, there have been a lot of really cool clients that have come. Uh, I'm very, very, very lucky, and I really want to highlight my gratefulness to the town of Santa Barbara for sort of, you know, sticking with me and, and supporting me and continuing to 
come back and give me business. So I, I love the town of Santa Barbara for that reason. And throughout the years, I've gotten to work with a lot of cool projects and every day is a little different, which is, I think, why I stuck with this career because, you know, my uh, ADD will always want me like, you know, doing something else or, you know, get tired of something in like 10 minutes. So it's it's been great to be able to work on like a totally different thing each day. And lately, um, I've been really excited about the TV shows I'm scoring. I did a Shark Week show uh, that aired just like two days ago or three days ago on Friday night. It was called The Mystery of the Black Demon Shark. And that was really cool. I'm getting to do some voiceovers and um, podcasts with you know celebrities like Rob Lowe. And uh, we got to interview Oprah and Matthew McConaughey and Mark Cuban, a bunch of huge people. Um, those have been really cool for like kind of the voiceover narration world. And then for like artists, there have been so many great artists. Um, my brother's a really incredible artist named uh, The Live Oaks is the name of his band. His name's Evan Lanham. He's a really cool artist that's come through, um, but it's it's all over the map in terms of genres. A girl who I work with named Allie Page, who is on the album with me as Haivaru. She sings lullaby. Her music is incredible, and I'm, I'm always such a fan of hers. Um, so there are, you know, too many to name, but, you know, off the top of my head, those ones stick out as some really, really cool artists. And I've been lucky to work on a, a bunch of them. So I know this tends to be a harder question for artists to answer, but now that this project has been released, what is the next project you're going to take on? Yeah, I and mean, honestly, I've been super excited for this moment. And it was such a push to get everything done by my birthday, which was sort of a, the motivating factor to get it released on, on that day. But I'm taking a little bit of a break right now and just working on client stuff. But starting this week, I'm already beginning scoring on a new TV show for Animal Planet. And I can't say what it's called. It's not out yet. But uh, I'm super excited to be scoring for that and doing some compositions in a bunch of different styles. And then um, I'm gonna be making some of my own original music. I might do a, a cover down the road. So if you guys have any cover requests, please feel free to shout them out. But I'm gonna be completely switching the style and I'm, I'm excited. I really honestly have yet to decide which style. I'm just going through random pieces I have and going, should I do that style or should I do that style? Listening to different artists. So it's, it's been a lot of fun trying to decide what style of music that I want to make moving forward, uh, or at least for the next single. Well, it's always wonderful speaking with local Santa Barbara artists. I know <laughs> Thank you. Santa Barbara gives somewhat of a small town vibe. Yeah. There are so many amazing people that come out of it, and it's very inspiring. So thanks for speaking with me again, Elliot. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much, Molly. It's a pleasure to be here, and I totally appreciate what you're doing for this world. So thank you. Once again, I'm Molly McNanny, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.